0: Welcome to episode 71 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And
1: I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse.
0: Before we talk to our guest today, we wanted to alert you to a couple of things opening the next week or so for the start of the spring season and also plays that are soon to close that you should try and catch before they do. First of all, Charlotte and I took ourselves off to David Hare's play Straight Line Crazy which stars Rafe Fiennes. It's opened at the bridge, and we're going to keep you waiting until after Easter, when we <laughs> actually talk to David here to talk more about it. But suffice to say that we both absolutely loved it. And at the Coliseum, the English National Opera's version of Handmaid's Tale has opened. It's bound to be extraordinary given how inventive ENA usually is, but it's on for a very limited run. It's a book fast to get tickets. You'll also need to hurry to get tickets to see Ruth Wilson, who's had great reviews for her performance in Jean Cocteau's classic monologue, The Human Voice, at the Harold Pinter Theatre. But that also ends very soon, 9th of April. So get a shift on.
1: Small Island, based on the wonderful novel by Andrea Levy about a group of Jamaicans arriving in Britain on the Windrush, is back by popular demand at the National, but it's only on until the 16th of April. So make sure not to miss the second run. I missed the first run and I'm so glad I caught it. It's long, beautifully straight. It is long, but it's You said it was st- too long. Well, it is a little bit too long. <laughs> How but long it's is it? It's nearly three hours, but it is... That's too long. It is a bit long, but it is very (laughs) engrossing and it does remind us very gruesomely how grim, unwelcoming and racist so many Brits were after the war. Um, Then, of course, you know, talking of extreme racism and somebody actually at the theatre said there ought to be A health warning (laughs) is the long, delayed and highly anticipated Aaron Sorkin adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird, which is opened at the Gilgood Theatre and has a good long run until the end of August. It starts Rafe Spall as Atticus Finch and it's absolutely brilliant. You've seen it? I've seen it. Oh, i put in for
0: producer tickets, but I haven't heard back yet.
1: No, it's really brilliant. I mean, Scout and oh. Her Brother and His Friend. I can't believe you've seen it already. I've, saw it. I've seen it. That's it... absurd. <laughs> They're played by adults, which is no easy task, but they do carry it off. And it's just worth going for Rafe's ball alone. He's absolutely superb. So you're going to have to fight to get a ticket, but it is well worth it.
0: Back to today when we're entering the magical world of the circus. Our guest today is Clover Stroud one of our most poetic writers, my former constituent, who in her own words writes about the way life feels. Clover is the sister of the late Nell Gifford, who started Gifford Circus, which returns on the 14th of April. Now, I've never been to Giffords, but I know Charlotte is a huge fan. For, so for those like me who've not been, we're going to be hearing all about it from Clover.
1: I am a huge fan, Ed, and given this is a Country in Townhouse podcast, I thought I'd mention that I visited the circus's home in Gloucestershire when I went to do an interview with Nell and Clover and their half-sister Emma Bridgewater for the magazine in autumn 2019, shortly before Nell Gifford tragically died of cancer aged just 46. Now Clover has written an extraordinarily moving memoir called The Red of My Blood about how she felt in the year following her beloved sister's death. So we're going to be talking to her about that too and we're absolutely delighted to have her with us today. Good morning Clover. Hello
2: nice to be here and
1: see you both.
0: Very nice to have you on. Uh, Congratulations on the book. It only came out uh, a few days ago. Uh, But before we talk about the book, Giffords is very far from being an ordinary circus. So please describe it for our listeners and for me. Tell us how it started. What was Nell's vision?
2: Well, Nell, when we were uh, um, children growing up, Nell was always obsessed by the circus, even when she was a really, very, very young child. And so we slept in the same bedroom as lots of children do. And there was the kind of room was lined with all of her toy monkeys. And this sort of she really wanted to be a monkey trainer when she was a very small child and then this interest in circus went on and our father worked in television he was a television director so the house that we grew up in was it was quite sort of chaotic and dilapidated but there was there was a sort of element of theatre around it as well there was lots of props I remember lots of hats and flags and costumes and later on when Nell started the circus she then took some of those bits of bits from the house really and uh, you know wove them into her show but I think that that, our childhood really influenced her and then when she went to university she was actually when she was writing about hard times I think it was Dickens novel she wrote all about circus in hard times and then when she left um, Oxford she went and she joined a very small circus called Circus Santus and she was making popcorn and riding horses and she was just completely and utterly obsessed by it and so in nineteen ninety she had got married and they started their own circus and it was very, very homemade and very, very charming in those days. And also all of her friends were playing the parts of uh, doing the curtains or making the wardrobe. So it was very, it was very, very very charming and horses were absolutely at the center of it we grew up in we grew up in wiltshire and horses had been a major major part of our life and then when we were teenagers mum had a mum had a really really catastrophic riding accident that left her profoundly brain damaged so she couldn't walk or talk or say our name or know who we were but she was still alive for 22 years so we had this very beautiful childhood that ended in a very very traumatic way i mean her ongoing she was she was in this very brain damaged state for 22 years and it was much more traumatic than her death actually because it went on oh, it was like sort of putting your finger down on trauma and holding it trauma and grief and death so i think that that kind of melancholy informs my work definitely and it absolutely informed what the circus was. So though it was very beautiful, there was incredible poetry at the centre of it, which I think is heavily linked to what happened to our mum and this very sort of beautiful childhood that we had. And Nell and Totti her husband made these beautiful Burgundy wagons and the show grew and and it was great fun. It was it was um it was quite chaotic and very wild. But can you just describe for our listeners a bit about the what it actually looks like? Because I
1: first saw it, I think, in the Barringtons, so which is a very beautiful village in Oxfordshire on the Gloucestershire border. And it's this tiny little... Uh, top isn't it There's, the tent is tiny everything about it is exquisite and small and sawdust it's all very real and you've got ducks running around and
2: yeah it's a sort of fantasy of what you imagine a yep. circus should be like it's burgundy wagons a very small tent that you might see at a kind of village fete or something like that and then certainly for the first 10 years it was even more kind of homespun and homemade that and straw bales and you know lovely girls in in um, fishnet stockings and burgundy velvet riding jackets, selling ice creams. And, and ho- horses were a big, big part of it. And for Nell, having horses in the ring. And also one of the things that was really driving Nell was this desire to take really, really good quality live entertainment to the villages. Because we grew up in a village called Minty which is kind of quite far flung, actually, really. We, we both felt very connected to rural life, I suppose. And she wanted to feel that she could take some great entertainment to villages that didn't, you know didn't really have that kind of entertainment certainly so it was quite a sort of you know it was quite a bold and un- very unusual thing to do obviously and i think nell said i i held a there was something she said about i held a a jewel up to my childhood and then i saw the circus and so she And I find that very moving because obviously that was my childhood as well. So it was our life together that she was in some way kind of reproducing in circus form. And Nell was absolutely meticulous about the art of the circus. She was so, I mean, she was obsessed by it. She was quite a difficult person to have as a sister sometimes because all she wanted to do was to talk about circus. and, And you could say, oh, I've just, you know, I've just written a book. And she'd say okay, that's good. Anyway, can I tell you about this Russian troupe that I've just met who I want to come, you know? It was was everything. It was absolutely everything the whole time. And that kind of massive attention to the detail of it that she had is what made it something completely different from anything that you've ever, you know, it's a kind of strange fusion of circus and theatre, almost opera at times as well. She did an incredible production of War and Peace Which was extraordinary. It was
1: absolutely extraordinary. Before we get on to what's happened to the circus now, can we talk about your book? Because I I read it in about one sitting. It's listeners. (laughs) It is very very raw and beautiful. And just 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 tell our listeners about it.
2: I had been a journalist for all my through my twenties and into my thirties, and then I wrote two memoirs. One called The World Other which was about mum's accident and our childhood and how I reacted to that. And Then I wrote one about motherhood called My World and Sleepless Nights. I write in a very, very, very confessional, incredibly... um, It's very easy to read my stuff, but I'm very interested in describing the kind of extremities of the way that we live. And those extremities are also extremities that kind of happen every day too. And I'd been working on something else and then now... Nell actually had had a very good prognosis she was she got cancer in 2015 and she got cancer pretty badly straight away but she was uh, she had a good, very good oncologist, and and he was optimistic. So Charlotte, when we saw you, when we did that interview, that was in about October, I think. Yeah, and it was a beautiful day. Do you remember? Yeah. It was just yeah. glorious, and it was we, it was all very
1: optimistic. Optimistic, then.
2: yeah, yeah. So that was into in the autumn of two thousand and nineteen, and ten days before Nell died, her oncologist had said, you've got, you know, good five years, maybe even 10 years. So we're all feeling really quite jubilant. She'd been having a great time. She had been in Cuba with her boyfriend Pozzo and she'd been buying horses and she'd been traveling a lot. She'd been in Switzerland. She, She was in really flying form, but she was in some pain. And then Very, very rapidly, she went downhill and um, she was in hospital and she called me on the Friday night and said, no, it's fine, I'm going to pull through this, we're we're going to have lots more adventures. And then the following morning, I got a call, this was in December, from the hospital saying you have to come immediately, come to hospital immediately. And I drove to Gloucester with my children and and my husband. And then the oncologist said, not the oncologist, the consultant said, now has got a day to live, which is a mind blowing thing to be told, and Nell was extraordinary. her death was really really extraordinary it was you know it was four decades too early, and I still kind of struggle i am you know even st- when I talk about nell's death i st- it still feels like a kind of somebody holding your heart and squeezing it or something like that it doesn't that pain doesn't stop but she had been doing a lot of amazing artwork in her the last few years of her life really and I think that she had been facing death certainly and it was so extraordinary being with her when she died it was so and I had this incredibly strong feeling of this thing that I write about in the book of this sort of petrol blue presence of death being in the room and the solemnity of that and the awe of that and she died we were in hospital on Saturday morning and she died she you know she died on Sunday afternoon and you know, grief just c- cracks your life open and, and I felt as though, just, I sort of felt as though my life was over in some way. I felt, okay, I i have have known grief before because I've dealt with mum and her accident and she died in two th- 2013, but this was something far more extreme and far more scary and so kind of cataclysmic the effect on me and yet I was also aware at the same time of a strange sense of feeling extremely alive and life feeling as though there was a great deal of kind of colour around it as well and I could feel all the extremities of myself and I... I I didn't think I was going to write about it until um, that spring I started thinking about it. And it was a very weird time because it was when lockdown happened as well. So everything, the whole world felt very weird at that moment. But I remember kind of examining people, watching people who'd also lost siblings or lost people they really loved and thought, how are they doing it? What are they doing? Like, is there some trick that I can learn from them about how to survive this and how to go on living a life that's meaningful and beautiful and interesting and fun and all of those things, which life really, those things felt as though they were totally over. And so that was why i started writing about it that's the what the book is about it's a very very intense exploration of that first year and the place that i get to and i've been having amazing responses from people because i write in this very very emotional way and and also hopefully like encouraging more conversations about it we're also kind of Oppressed, aren't we? We don't want to talk about death or sex. I really like talking about both of them. (laughs) Well, I think it's not
1: just for other people who've experienced great loss and tragedy like you have. I think what's great about it is almost a handbook for how to behave around it because, you know, all of us have written those letters to people going I'm so sorry for your loss and I can't imagine what you're feeling and you're so brilliant because you you tell us how you feel about those letters and how much they piss you off so tell us a bit about that because that's really interesting
2: yeah one of the reasons I wanted to write the book actually was because in that first bit of grief, when you feel like you feel completely weird and you behave in a weird way and you your body feels weird and your emotions, your heart, everything, food tastes odd if you want to eat, trying to pick up a plate and put it into the dishwasher feels like a really, really odd thing to do. So you feel other and you feel separate from everybody else. And then people say to you, oh, I cannot begin to imagine how you're feeling. And in that well-meant phrase, we push the people who are mourning, who are bereaved, who are grieving, into a even to, into a more distant, more lonely, more alien place. And and I know it's meant in a kind of kind way. And it's something that people say, I think, is almost like a knee-jerk reaction, because they don't know what else to say. But it's a really, it's a really alienating feeling. Yeah, I think people are also reading it who are curious, you know, who, are cu- who haven't been through. I don't think you can, I don't think you need to have ha- experienced grief to get something from this book at all. It's, um, and there are definitely people reading it who have never been been through it. And I think it's kind of eye opening, hopefully. What would you what should people be saying to you? They should be saying, um, I'm I'm here, I'm around, I'm thinking of you. If the if you don't know the person who's died, say a friend of yours has lost their father or something and you don't know them, ask them about what that person was like. I think people really, really want an opportunity to talk about the dead person. So say what was your dad like? What was what did you like doing together? Where did he like going on holiday? You know, what, what, was a, what was something fun that you did together? I think that we want to feel connected to other people, but it's much better to try and connect and try and to empathise and to try and be present rather than to say, I can't begin to imagine what you're feeling. And the subtext of that is like, and I'm really bloody glad that it's you and not me that's going yeah. through it. <laughs> I guess the book is my attempt to try and explain... Death and one of the things that I found was that for the first few months, as many people do when somebody has died, is you walk around just going, where, where are you? Where have you physically gone? How can you have just vanished? You know the 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 terrifying nature of that. How can you have just gone? And I was looking for her, and I was talking to her, and I was trying to trying to will signs to happen. You know, trying to. I would go out and walk on the Ridgeway, um, and, and I'd want. There to be some clap of thunder or some incredible bird to land in front of me or some kind of, you know, heavenly sign that she was there. And I write about wanting, not just wanting that, but wanting the heavens to open and there be a kind of hologram of Null in front of me in some way. You want some sort of certainty of something You want a voice to answer you when you're walking around saying, where are you? And of course that voice doesn't answer you. Of course there is no sudden huge sign. Or we write certain significance into the robin or the butterfly or the deer or whatever that you see. And it was in when I stopped searching in this kind of really frantic, frenetic way that I felt as though she did kind of. I actually felt as though I kind of sort of met her again as we were in adolescence and in the period after mum's accident as when we were younger women together I suppose and that was a very beautiful experience and sometimes occasionally I can feel it in the way that I move my hand or a certain expression only tiny little things and I can't kind of conjure it up but there is that sense of joy and consolation that you do feel and a sense of kind of awe but I don't really think oh I can feel Nell with me at this point but I can kind of feel an embodiment in some way in the way that you go on living and I'm really interested by the way grief can be a kind of creative act if you want it to the way that you can change your life in some way or another It, it requires such a huge effort and it requires a kind of Daily practice, really, of trying to, trying to understand it and live with the loss and and carry the loss, which is which is there. I mean, my dad said that he thinks about Nell all, all the time. He's kind of thinking about her in some way all the time. Um, you
0: find it easy to listen to her voice again.
2: Sometimes I do. It's so strange because there are so many recordings now. Obviously, exactly. you know, digitally. And to start with, it was absolutely excruciatingly and incredibly difficult. But I can a little bit more but the poignancy of that doesn't I can't just watch things joyfully you know I have to be feeling pretty pretty robust and strong and then sometimes you want to feel you know sometimes you actually want to go into the place where you can kind of wallow in the pain and the grief as well I think that when you've got a lot of things going on in the rest of your life and I've got lots of children and you have to kind of Get on with life. You do have to get on with life and life does, you know, it's incredible how time moves forward and it moves you forward. Talking about going
1: forward, what's happening with the circus now? Because there, Giffords is reopening on the 14th of April.
2: There are lots of really great people involved with the circus and there's lots of very, very good friends, Tweedy, lots of people that clown. I really love, Who's is the a clown. the clown. Yeah. But what has happened there has been... A uh, And that, you know, I don't discount that. That's a, a, a really, really big deal. There are great people involved. But Nell left a very clear, unambiguous letter of wishes. And her accountant has taken over the circus and has blocked that letter of wishes. And for her, the art of the circus was so, so very, very important. And it's been really, really heartbreaking for me to fail in that, in in those simple instructions that she left. I think that because of that, the art that she lived for and the art that she created and that poetry that she created over time will be lost. And the circus may continue and, you know, have its lovely burgundy wagons and so on. But for somebody who absolutely lived for that art to see those wishes you know blocked and and betrayed I feel like Nell has been betrayed so I feel really really incredibly heartbroken about it and also I think it's really really important that people understand that if they write something in a letter of wishes it doesn't stand for anything at all so you know I'm a trustee but and I and that's why I fought so hard to try and get this um this enacted.
1: So sorry. Let's just let's just wind back on that. So so tell us exactly what happened. So she wrote a will, but in addition to that, not part of the will was a letter. Letter of wishes. wishes. Yeah,
2: and she, you know, right. she was very clear about how she, how maintaining the beauty of the circus mm-hmm. was like. She wanted. She said she wanted it to be as precious as a Fabergé egg, and she, um, that was what really really mattered to her. And I. I worry about it greatly and I feel a great, great sense of the betrayal of Nell. And as her sister, as somebody who she asked to carry this out, having failed to do that, has been really, really heartbreaking. The circus was totally a part of, you know, my kid, my eldest children, who were like 18 and 21, completely grew up there. Um, it was completely a big part of... My life and that jewel that Nell held up to her childhood, that's, as I said, that's my childhood as well. So there's a lot of stuff in it that feels very kind of personal to our lives. And Nell's last show in 19, uh, 2019 was really, really extraordinary. And she, she came into the ring on a white horse with wearing white with her daughter as well. In that act, in that act Nell is referencing so many different images from the Bible to T.S. Eliot you know that that is the poetry that's what's so valuable and so beautiful and made it this strange beautiful funny yes but also also kind of had an odd melancholy an odd I think you were saying Charlotte like you know you're kind of you felt as though it was representing something that was lost or something that was gone and that's magic you know that's Mm. incredibly incredibly valuable and incredibly something to be treasured and 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 it's very sad that that's that it has. It's not being her wishes are not being honoured. But that's why I think it's important to say that if you're making your will, especially a woman, you know, so many women dying of cancer, don't leave things in a letter of wishes because Nell didn't know it wasn't legally binding. If she put it in her will, maybe this this wouldn't have happened. I think that's a really really important message for people to kind of hear. I suppose mm. That, mm. that that um. Be careful with that. Anyway, listeners will decide for
1: themselves. (laughs) (laughs) But the book is fantastic and um, it really is a very beautiful book, so... Clover, thank you so much. It's been nice talking to you both.
0: It's been great.
1: Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk,
0: where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from carol Nett. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands Monthly. We love
1: your feedback, so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. We're now going to be taking a short break, but we'll be back on Sunday, the 24th of April. And do make sure you come back then and start listening as we have lots of exciting guests coming up, including David Hare. But for now, have a wonderful Easter. Goodbye.